This is Climate Conversations, a new series of the OCPOD podcast. I'm Erin Ransford, and I'm here with our hosts, Dr. Ismail Nabil and Dr. Manny Berenji. Dr. Nabil is the Deputy Medical Director of Employee Health, Safety, and Wellness for the Mount Sinai Health System and an Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the Icon School of Medicine. He is a fellow of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine and is the current Vice Chair of ACOM's Council on Scientific Affairs. Dr. Brenji is a board-certified physician specializing in occupational and environmental medicine, preventive medicine, and non-operative musculoskeletal medicine. An ACOM fellow, Dr. Brenji is active in the Member Communications Committee and several special interest sections. She is currently Chief of Occupational Health at the Long Beach VA Healthcare System in Long Beach, California. She also holds a faculty appointment as Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the UC Irvine School of Public Health. Today is December 1st, 2021. We are joined by special guest Dr. Brett Perkison for a discussion on the health impacts of hurricanes and floods. Dr. Perkison is an assistant professor at the University of Texas School of Public Health in Houston, Texas, and previously served as the medical director at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Perkison is board certified in both family medicine and occupational and environmental medicine and is a fellow of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Dr. Nabil, Dr. Brenji, and Dr. Perguson. We're so happy to have you here as our special guest today. Thank you, Erin. Uh, it's a, always a pleasure to, um, to see you and Manny, and we have a special guest, Brett. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's a real honor and pleasure to have you here with us today. I have great respect for you and your team over at UT Houston. I really know you based on the work you've done around storms and hurricanes uh, and the impact on communities. We always want to kind of understand, you know, how folks have dealt with these circumstances uh, through the course of their lives. What have your personal experiences been with storms and hurricanes? And how have you been able to kind of wrap your head around these events over the course of the past 20 years? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. So and most of my, I didn't grow up on the coast, but most of my professional career has been here either in Galveston or, or Houston. I actually went to medical school in Galveston. And when I was there, there was a, um, a tropical storm that came that I was uh, uh, decided to hunker down in the uh, apartment where I was living and um, kind of witnessed the power of these storms where the causeways were shut down and there was, there was no movement and you felt very vulnerable on one of these little barrier islands in the middle of this uh, heaving storm. But then when I, a, a few years later, when I had settled down, was in residency at, uh, in Houston, uh, we had Tropical Storm Allison, which was back in 2001. And I, uh, I was home, it was, remember it vividly on a Saturday night, and uh, my kids were small and we watched the water rise in the street in front of us. And I've heard on the news reports that communities were being flooded and um, uh, we lost power for a period of time. And, and afterwards, the scope in the Texas Medical Center where I work, uh, Texas Medical Center is one of the largest medical centers in the world, was particularly vulnerable to that storm back in 2001. Probably uh, three-fifths three of the total damages for Houston was to the Texas Medical Center. The, the basements of the hospital flooded, the uh, animal labs, they lost years of research through this, through this flooding. Patients had to, had to be evacuated through these emergency exits in the middle of the night. I wasn't able to get there for that, and it, but it was horrific 
what had happened. And really, we were, we were all caught unawares. Uh, there had been a previous storm back in 1977, um, but there had been not enough movement towards doing something about it for future flood. It, the thought was that that was sort of a once-in-a-lifetime flood, and so they were not ready for 2001. At that point, uh, back in 2001, however, after that incident, there was a lot of movement in the medical center to increase uh, storm barriers, these, these uh, barriers that go up around hospitals in the advent of a storm to improve the drainage, uh, to be ready for the next one. And so people were kind of spurred to action. However, the next storm that, that, that uh, I dealt with was not to Houston, but it, it went to New Orleans. It was Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And I was working at Baylor College of Medicine at the time. The day of the storm came uh, for Katrina, and uh, we th- the, the thought was that the, the worst part of the, the, the storm was not as bad as it had been suspected. A lot of the damage uh, had not been done uh, that, that was being expected. And then uh, the next day, the, the, the levee broke uh, for Lake Pontchartrain, and hundreds of homes got flooded that were beneath uh, the level of the lake during that storm. And that and, and as you know, that was one of those, one of those horrific uh, disasters and most costly disasters of the century. The leaders in Houston, community leaders in Houston kind of banded together and they saw all these people that were in need through an entire community that was shut down. And so we had our, our Astrodome where the, uh, the Houston Oilers had played, had been sort of lying dormant there and was this great big parking space. And the city leaders uh, reached out to the community of New Orleans in a, in a uh, transportation of a lot of these victims of Hurricane Katrina, these these home, people that had been in these homes that were flooded, were sent over by bus over to us to take care of their medical needs and their lodging. And so I and a few other people from the clinic, we volunteered to go over there and we set up a clinic for these uh, people in, uh, from Hurricane Katrina. We, we basically uh, were given uh, some stretchers and uh, uh, just kind of the bare necessities. A few donated uh, pharmaceuticals from one of the hospitals. And I Vividly remember the first person that was wheeled in from from Hurricane Katrina. We expect somebody came in in a wheelchair from a bus, and we, you know, kind of expected maybe kind of a slow roll of patients, but that the buses just kept coming and coming and coming. And uh, it was amazing to see the community of Houston and to be part of that. There were, uh, as these numbers kept increasing, uh, the the response of the community uh, increased as well. We had. Uh, Cisco Foods donated food. They had hot food for these these patients, uh, these homeless people that, that had been displaced. We had radiograph services. We had x-ray services there. Uh, we had a full psychiatric wing filled with psychiatrists to deal with the trauma. Uh, some of the things you might think of as, as, as people that were on dialysis, all of a sudden they had no need for dialysis. We had to do something fast. And so a number of different dialysis centers in the community came forward and, and, and set up services really came together. Just everything that we needed, we, we developed. We had housing over in the, in the Reliance Stadium that, that we were being uh, shipped patients over to. And uh, uh, that was really before electronic health records were really fully developed. And so uh, we developed a charting system to kind of keep up with, with patients and follow them. And so it was, it was an amazing moment that when people kind of reacted, but it was also made me aware of just how, how vulnerable we were on the Gulf Coast. Also, one of the things that I kind of regretted was that I didn't, we didn't get a chance to really analyze some of the uh, lessons learned from this. It was too, we were just too much trying in the moment to, to do things to try to sort of 
take care of the people. And so that was one of the things in the back of my mind. The next time this happened, I really wanted to try to analyze some data and try to get some meaningful use out of it, you know, from this great event. So I kind of kept that in my mind. And it's, it's very um, interesting to, to hear that events unfolding. And you mentioned a lot of things that uh, the displacement, uh, vulnerable populations, psychiatric issues, acute emergencies, use of astrodome, in, in order to house these individuals. So as, as we walk through a Katrina disaster, where, where do you see yourself, like as, as Med, an occupational medicine physician, sort of taking care of these individuals and sort of working and establishing some framework you know, for the next storm? So I think we were, we were operating really in a in an urgent care mode. We were trying to deal with the, the problem at hand and then and keeping in mind that we had no medical records and uh, we had to kind of go on on people's memory about what medications they were on. So I think I think sort of that, that urgent care kind of mentality kind of has to be sort of your front line uh, for, for evaluation of patients. However, that being said, I think if more sophisticated systems when we think about the occupational and environmental medicine exposures, that that also needs to be taken into account that we we probably we didn't address because of the uh, kind of reactionary nature that 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 we had. There are a lot of exposures during a flood that that we've since learned, and and knowledge of that I think for for communities at risk uh, is particularly valuable. For instance, uh, water treatment plants that. Uh, they stop functioning during these floods. They they stop working, and so you think of, of floodwaters, kind of rising floodwaters, as not being particularly uh, contaminated, but they very much are, um, uh, with, because you know you, now you have these water treatment plants, sewer systems, and so you have issues with 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 E. coli and other uh, human-borne um, GI illnesses, issues like strep and staph, can, and, and so. So kind of having a knowledge of the background of the community where someone's coming from is, is incredibly useful. And, and a lot of this information, I think, uh, needs, would be coming from communities directly, from, from public health officials, from city officials, um, so that you can see when someone's from a particular area to understand the context where the individual oftentimes is so traumatized and not really aware of their surroundings or community exposures, you really, it really requires a community response to really do justice to adequate treatment and anticipation of particular exposures. So taking you back into Houston and some of the biggest storm in Houston is Hurricane Harvey, and I know you're, you're part of that um, event, just giving us the context of how Houston is situated and what impact of storms it has uh, to date, as, as we have seen the devastation from Hurricane Harvey? So, so within the, the context of your question, Ismail, I guess I'll talk a little bit about Houston's situation to kind of answer that question and then maybe talk a little bit about Hurricane Ike in 2008 and then Harvey in 2017. But so Houston is um, low lines, probably maybe eight or 10 feet above sea level. And um, it's probably about 30 miles from the coast. But uh, the reason Houston was founded was because it was along what we call a river, what we call bayous, Buffalo Bayou, um, that that goes through Houston and then empties out into Galveston Bay. 
And um, so when, uh, when storms come in, uh, this is a, a, a water-saturated area, so it's really flooding as far as the tributary systems go. But the other part of it is that the, uh, the reason Houston's the third largest city in the country is because of its petrochemical industry. And that's situated along Galveston Bay and the kind of the lower Buffalo Bayou. And that's affected by storm surges. And so when you have a, 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 a hurricane, uh, usually like, for instance, a Category 5 hurricane will often result in a storm surge of, it can be 8, 10, 12 feet, depending on how it hits. There's a lot of factors uh, but a storm surge of that size uh, that comes up through the bay, up into the tributary system, can then kind of overload into all these large uh, petrochemical industries that are align- al- aligning it. And so um, when that happens, you've got uh, all the various chemicals that they worked with, literally thousands of chemicals um, are at risk for going on into the, the ship channel, into the, into the drinking systems of the surrounding densely populated community. Uh, during these storm surges in this, uh, and, and, and the hurricanes, oftentimes electricity will go out, uh, both in residences and in these manufacturing sites. And when, when you lose power in these, these, these factories and uh, manufacturing sites are designed to run 24 hours a day. And when you lose power to them, they don't, they don't start up gracefully. Um, these, these, uh, uh, chemicals, these gases, this uh, oil is designed to be at a certain temperature, certain pressure. And when you lose that, um, uh, you you have to, in order for the to keep the plant from exploding or, you know, other just catastrophic things, you have to flare uh, some of these or you have to do releases. And so you just have this compendium of different chemical releases occurring all at once. And so that puts Houston uh, because of its densely populated community and because of the location of the petrochemical industry is being extremely vulnerable uh, to the effects of hurricane, both from the rainfall um, and from the effects of this tide, this ocean coming in or this storm surge coming in and overflowing normal, normal areas. For instance, if we look at the last summer of Hurricane Ida and the effect it had on Lake Charles, um, if, if a hurricane like that were to hit Galveston Bay in the right place, um, in the right direction, um, you could have one of the worst environmental catastrophes, you know, in the world. And so um, it's just a matter of time before one of those storms uh, hits. And then with climate change, you have an increased chance of that uh, every year happening. So, Brett, talk to us about that. Uh, you know, we've been seeing these storms, you know, gain more and more intensity. We're seeing more of these storms happen more frequently, um, at least in your professional life, living in the Gulf Coast area, um, what is your take about what the future holds? If there is no uh, mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions, if there's no real concerted effort uh, to really uh, bring all the stakeholders together from the petrochemical industries and other industries, uh, what do you see the future of the Gulf Coast being uh, in terms of these storms, do you think these are going to get worse and worse? Do you think it's going to plateau? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think realistically, um, uh, regardless of of how fast we're able to mitigate these CO two uh, emissions, that that we're going to have to change how we do business. That the um, I think that uh, as sea level rises, and uh, every indication shows that this is increasing at increasing at, at, at an increasing rate, uh, probably more so than a lot of projections were, um, that we're going to have to have a, 
a relocation of, of actual of these petrochemical sites. I think it's it's uh, it, it's extremely important that they uh, relocate away from the the Buffalo Bayou area, and and that they spend the money to protect themselves from these storm surges to protect these uh, from the environment these environmental catastrophes. There's discussion of having uh, a, a system of dikes out in uh, outside of Galveston along the Gulf Shore to prevent storm surges. And so that that will help and I think that's going to be necessary. When you put a system of dikes like that out there, it's going to have environmental consequences. It'll affect uh, the the oyster industry, the fish, the whole ecosystem of the area, but I'm afraid I think it's the uh, the lesser of two evils that we'll have to have something uh, to help protect against these these effects. And so this, the, the less efficient we are at decreasing CO2 emissions, the less effective those changes will be. And I think you know, we've all seen the projections of what ocean level rise can do in the, in the next, say, 80 years by 2100. If the Greenland ice sheet melts, you know, this, we're talking the sea level rises of 50, 100 feet, you know, then if, if no change is done, then the entire Houston area Will have to be will have to be evacuated. Won't won't be inhabitable. Um, uh, certainly won't be the industrial uh, complex that it is that it is today. So, uh, talking about uh, hurricane impact, I know that your group has noticed a change in respiratory issues, uh, particularly in at-risk communities. What do we expect um, after the hurricane? So, if you fast forward to two thousand seventeen, um, when when hurricane Harvey uh, occurred. Uh, fortunately, my house has not been flooded um, during any of these these storms. But we got we got within a couple of inches of being being flooded, and the people six houses down from me were flooded. So um, so yes, I saw very much firsthand how my entire neighborhood um, was was really affected by this. But as soon as those stormwaters receded, our our uh, department in the Department of um, Environmental Health Services in at UT School of Public Health. We got together and we had some N95 masks from a previous research project, and we pooled those along uh, with some some other funding that that we had available, and and bought masks and gloves, and we began to pass those out uh, as kits uh, to uh, workers and to people who were uh, remediating their homes, mucking and gutting, tearing out the sheetrock, tearing out everything really uh, uh, just to the to the basic kind of two before construction. Um, and, and so one of the things that was really impressed on me was, again, almost this organic development of, vol- of volunteer networks of uh, churches and uh, c- uh, community organizations and volunteer groups from across the country came and assembled and they set up these, these dis- distribution sites across the country. And so we kind of uh, piggybacked onto them. Uh, and just by word of mouth, and and we we were able to distribute these at about thirty different sites across the, the city, and um, and and so we we were kind of aware of of the um, uh, just the impact. It was hot. People didn't have any water. They didn't have any food, and they were you know very grateful for these for these masks. Afterwards, six months later, we we did develop a research protocol. I remembered my experiences from Katrina, and we went back and we called those people. Uh, on on the telephone that we had passed out uh, the masks to, and and we we learned what had similar studies have shown in that yes respiratory effects are greatly increased in this for a number of reasons it, specifically in the Gulf Coast area you've got a lot of mold growth and so you've got 
the effects of allergens on the respiratory system. Uh, you've got the sheetrock that I mentioned and the alkaline products from the sheetrock that people are remediating and just irritant effects of asthma. Numerous other just ex aerosolized exposures that people have. And, um, and so, so respiratory effects are very much, very much part of this. Um, we only had a few masks to pass out. There were no Home Depots, there were no Lowe's. They were all shut down because of these uh, outages and, and what masks were left were, were promptly purchased. Uh, one of the takeaways from, from our experience was, was the need for emergency supplies for, for these communities is not needed just in the two or three days that the stormwaters are here, but they're needed for months afterwards. And I'm currently part of a, of a grassroots organization, advocacy organization here in Houston, uh, composed of a lot of members of these affected neighborhoods of lower socioeconomic neighborhoods. And they're still living with this mold in their homes because they don't have the money to remediate their homes. If you look at how the FEMA system works, they can remediate part of a home, but they, it's only so much. It's not, it's not a complete uh, reimbursement. There's a lot of people that, that are out of their own personal finances in order to, to repair their homes. And a lot of our community does not have the wherewithal to do that. There are a lot of things we can talk about tonight. One is, is that the Gulf Coast, the East Coast, we're all vulnerable. And I think there is a need to develop networks uh, of people to help each other out when there are uh, storm events, because on any given year, there will be catastrophic storm events that will only increase with climate change. And just like Houston helped out New Orleans, I think that we needed this system, this buddy system, uh, to assume that you will have kind of communities that are, are, that are intact only 30 or 40 miles away. And they need to have the ability to house uh, communities that, that are affected uh, in terms of supplies, uh, in terms of housing, shelter, just sort of basic necessities. And then to be able to kind of sustain that. FEMA needs to, to, to kind of retool itself about how, how it approaches emergencies and not just in the media a uh, few days, but for months afterwards. Just kind of the coordination also with these volunteer communities, they're getting more sophisticated and to use uh, to use what tools we have to help coordinate logistics, to look for resources. There's opportunities to improve on that um, as we go forward, because we know that we'll be doing, dealing with this. We know kind of a timeline that we'll be we'll de dealing with, and this really needs to be part of a disaster preparedness, really needs to be on a regional basis. One of the things that uh, strikes me in terms of you followed up with uh, these individuals that you give masks uh, six months out, and the experience that uh, we have here in New York for Sandy and you have with Katrina and Harvey, um, there's a lot of folks who comes from neighboring counties, states. How do you track them? How do you really establish these workers um, and figure out if they need help after the event? That's a monumental task. Yes. I mean, the, the easy answer would be would be to have kind of a universal tracking system, universal medical health records. And maybe even a couple of years ago, I would have said that's pretty unrealistic. We'll even have, I mean, Epic is the, the medical system that we, we recently have. I've been in three different systems that have had Epic. And, and, and in, in times past, there's a lot of barriers, as, as it should be for access to you know healthcare information, confidential healthcare information. But I've been pretty intrigued with recently the, the ability of Epic to download information from private medical hospitalizations and for us to access it. It has improved dramatically 
in the last five years for ability to do that. So I would say uh, that, that that's one of the things we need to be able to track people and continue to develop that, continue to look and see what kind of safeguards do we have to protect medical information to be, but to be able to track people uh, and to incorporate in these electronic health records, you know, your standard medical care, but also things, also information of potential exposures to alert providers of a, a potential exposure that might be occurring uh, in, in, a, in a group where, where, where a victim has been flooded. And then these people often are very migratory. Uh, you know, they, they might stop off in Houston uh, for care for a few days, and then they may go on up to uh, a relative that, that lives up in, uh, you know, in Arkansas. Uh, and so to be able to track that, um, I think is something that we, we really kind of need to be able to, to work towards tracking it in terms of care for the individual, but also in also understanding what to what degree of resources that we truly do need uh, for, a, for, a pop, for a displaced population. Um, I think is a very important part of this. Uh, where do you think sustainability efforts could be part of this uh, initiatives, uh, both from the employer side um, and the community side uh, in, in order to prevent these events that you just experienced, especially for hurricanes? Yeah. So, so I think first and foremost, I always want to say we need to do everything we can to start decrease these carbon emissions. We need to, uh, companies need to take the, the role. And I, and I think uh, a lot of them are doing that, but we need to continue to push this. This is all our, our efforts at disaster preparedness will not be enough if we don't you know stop this process. So all the, the issues with sustainability of, of uh, green investment, decreasing waste product, everything we can to do for sustainability is kind of a, a key, key part of this. And then second, um, acknowledging that disasters are going to occur, um, unprecedented disasters, flooding disasters. Uh, and I think the role of the employer really can be can be one of really taking making disaster preparedness part of their general operations. And so uh, things like having supplies for their employees and for their families of, of stockpiling masks, providing safe shelter in the advent of a storm, working with healthcare uh, contracts for their health insurance to be able to provide for uh, mental health care in the advent of these storms and for uh, financial resources, easy financial loans to take place. That all needs to be part of a kind of human resources package uh, that, that needs to be available. And then just like communities, uh, employers can work and, and partner uh, with, with each other as well. We have a lot of franchises and chains that, that provides opportunities for communication uh, so that, again, when one community is affected by a storm, uh, you can have employers uh, from, the same, from the same company uh, that can go and provide relief services to those employees. That would take a lot of burden off of the local city, public, uh, and county health departments and in the federal level if if employers uh, took that as as part of what they do, sort of the general standard operations. The question is about the, the first responders, the firefighters, the police. I think they get overwhelmed um, as the hurricane moves in. Sometimes hurricane events are coupled with, in some cases, tsunami uh, that precedes that. How do you see a role of occupational medicine physician taking the charge and helping the, uh, the city and community uh, in these events 
um, you know, overseeing the, the deployment as well as the care of these individuals who've been impacted. I think, you know, sort of the pre, pre-storm planning, the role of the occupational medicine doctor is really uh, to provide eye, uh, advice to operations to constantly kind of beat the drum of decreasing carbon emissions in sustainable practices. And then in regards specifically to disasters, um, I really I really see them being, they, they have an opportunity to be real leaders in the organization, to be the point person, to be the liaison sometimes between the city and, and public health communities. There's not enough staff in city and public health departments. And so to in during during these disaster operations. So I really do see the occupational physician as being the public health, designated public health person for that, for that company to be able to take those advisory warnings. Uh, that's coming from the state and federal level, and to pass those on to to the the employer and to the employee community. And likewise, I see sort of the reversed communication of, of information for specific hazards that these companies may have, uh, as I mentioned in the petrochemical industry, uh, to communicate that in a timely fashion to city and public health officials, um, to have very much transparency of of what of what is occurring of of where when mitigation efforts are working when they're not so that the uh, uh, public health officials can alert the greater community i think drills are are useful i think that that needs to take place you need you need to have an opportunities to practice this uh case studies from from existing storms uh that have happened and and really learning off of that that can be really a role for the occupational medicine physician. So a, a question comes to my mind, like a, a patient presents uh, with uh, sort of chronic symptoms or respiratory symptoms. As occupational medicine, you basically look at asthma profile and others. Um, we usually don't ask the history of whether they've been part of hurricane or they, they've been working in, in sites which uh, potentially cause exacerbation of asthma or they're, they're in moldy environments. How do you take a history? How do you assess the patient who has been impacted by the storm? What are the things that you're looking for in the history and physical exam that can connect the dots? I think um, that's right. I think I think in the aftermath of a storm, two or three days afterwards, it's probably pretty easy there was this happened. They got this exposure. And now they have, and now they have symptoms, because um, uh, it's a traumatic, a dramatic event that that really changed what they were doing. But I think it, I think the further out you go, uh, the more easier it might be to to miss this. And so, um, uh, or, or particularly as people as people do move, and and so, so you want to get a history, of just simple questions about where. Where, where have you lived previously uh, in the last six months, in the last 12 months? Has, has anything occurred j- differently? Very open-ended questions to try to sort of elicit um, a response for looking, is there a change in the, in the environment or in the home environment? I think specifically once you if, learn that if a person has been through one of these traumatic events, really kind of drilling down to where are you at in your um, in your home repair, if this is somebody that had their home flooded, because uh, a home that just had water on the floors uh, has a, a lot different exposures than a, a home where the where you had three or four feet of flooding. You've got you've got much more chance for for mold development. 
uh, to occur in your house, to be behind the walls where maybe, maybe it's not even that obvious. Maybe they did, maybe they just tore out the sheetrock, but they didn't really tear out all the areas that might've gotten damp. And so they're getting kind of this uh, insidious exposure to the mold, uh, mental health, financial health, really asking about, you know, how are you, how are you doing, you know, financially, you know, trying to tap into depression, anxiety, PTSD, particularly in my, in my own neighborhood, you know, people have been, had been exposed to three or four different floods in a, in, in a two year period. And so they've been reflooded uh, repeatedly. And so um, if you're, if you're looking at why is somebody having anxiety attacks or why are they, you know, suddenly uh, depressed or maybe not performing well at their job, kind of dialing back and kind of getting, getting a, a history, a financial history, like how were they affected uh, during these storms? And so all of the, all of those things can kind of come together. I think sometimes people's financial health is overlooked. We sort of by nature don't want to inquire about people's finances, but you know, it was interesting after I gave a present this uh, my one of my Harvey presentations to the Texas Medical Association. I had a, a gentleman, older gentleman, come up to me uh, after the presentation who who was a, an, an older family practitioner in Rockport, Texas, which is just south of Houston, where Hurricane Harvey hit. And he said, you know. They don't, no one realizes it, but you need to come down to Rockport and interview these people. Like these people, their homes are built, they're, they're restored, but none, but they've all spent their life savings doing it, trying to do that. And so, and they are stressed out and they're barely able to kind of hold it together. So it's in, in some of those cases, you know, it's not, it's not quite as dramatic. Um, uh, Everything may look okay on the outside, but internally, uh, some of our support structures are not holding together as well. So just to expand on that, Brett, uh, you mentioned financial health, and that's part of financial well-being. And clearly, a lot of these folks have had cumulative exposures to multiple storms on end. Um, when you see this patient in your clinic, and you're trying to assess their financial status, and you feel that they are in need of help, do you actually have a Rolodex of professionals or uh, groups of, uh, you know, individuals that you can refer these folks to? Um, Because I think that's the main step. I mean, as clinicians, as occupational medicine, environmental medicine physicians, we can identify the pain points. Clearly, the financial bit is a pain point. But what do we do with that information? And I think, you know, trying to develop some type of strategic framework for our fellow colleagues to be able to direct these individuals to the right places. You know, a lot of times there can be community resources, there could be state resources. I mean, I'm just thinking outside the box here, but do you think there might be a role for public-private partnerships to be able to help these individuals, you know, secure those loans that they need to be able to make those renovations and those remediations to their homes? What do you think the future holds for these people? I'll, I'll answer your question first by putting on my occupational medicine cap. And so, you know, I, I didn't mention it the first in background. I've done residencies in family medicine and occupational environmental medicine. So I've done both throughout my career. So when I when I was at, I worked for five years at one of the large petrochemical companies here and in, in both manufacturing at the refinery and, and in corporate setting and research settings. And there was a system in place with the company that, in the event of a, of a natural disaster, or even if you had, say, for instance, somebody 
uh, if there was a, an, an accident, a, a fatality at work. Well, they had a clause in their, in their insurance, uh, as part of their insurance program, where they, there was a, 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 psych, a psychology group, a psychiatric practice that would bring in a group of psychologists that would set up in our clinic to provide services, counseling services to employees in the, the two or three days afterwards. And you didn't have to make an appointment. You just showed up in our clinic. Uh, it was, you know, there was no copay or any of that stuff. It was all part of it. And they just, just provided resources that they were, that they were there. And then the other part of it was human, uh, uh, human resources. HR had a program where there were some short-term uh, low interest or no interest financial loans that was available to employees in the aftermath of Hurricane Ike, which I was working for at the time. So that's a, those are very tangible plans that can be built into an employer that the occupational medicine physician can, can, can be part of that, be part of that negotiation. I think sometimes we... We don't want to. We don't want to get involved in the negotiation of health insurance, or we're not invited to. But I think this is this is an opportunity. This very much determines how well your your staff deals with this stuff. Because in in the event that your community is affected by a storm, your these employees are required to be at work to deal with the disasters, the issues that are occurring there at the workplace. While at the same time, their own home may be flooded, and they're dealing with their family members. It's 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 a problem, and. And so, so we need some short-term resources like that. And that can be, we can build into that. That is, that is doable. I think, you know, we have to realize that insurance is a, is an employer, a large employer can dictate the terms and insurance people probably, you know, they're looking for leads. They want to be effective, you know, providers too. So there's, there's that part of it. And then, and then I think, you know, if in, in sort of a more primary care mode, that in general, the Blue Cross Blue Shield United Healthcare that needs to be part of it. That they we need to get them involved in part of the discussion. Uh, so and they very much can provide a similar model to the general community that's not necessarily tied to uh, an employer negotiating a special deal because that's only you know large companies can only do that. Um, but but for smaller companies or people that are self-employed. That should be possible too. I mean, at least at least the options to do that. You know, catastrophic insurance should include catastrophic mental care, mental uh, health care, and financial resources to do that. I know those things are not cheap, but they're that they're really necessary. And in the long run, if they deal with them up front, you will have less morbidity and costs in the long run. Thank you, Brad. It's been a pleasure having you on. And um, I hope that we conclude this looking to the future, be more optimistic. And I think we have the tools and really the abilities to take care of these individuals. Thank you. Thanks, Brett. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us. 